Hey, welcome to the Foolproof Theology Podcast, where I like my theology like I like my bourbon, strong and a little bit overwhelming as I process it. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host, and I'm glad to be with you uh, here. This uh, this morning on the podcast, we've got Dr. Don Payne, uh, who I wanted to kind of give a brief introduction before uh, before we kind of welcome him to the show formally. I'm really excited because Dr. Payne has been somewhat of a theological mentor to me over the last uh, at least few years, but I've known him for uh, going on a decade now. I had the opportunity to work with him on uh, topics like theological method, theological anthropology, um, just a great teacher. One of the things I love about Dr. Payne is he's relationally uh, attuned to his students. He cares deeply, uh, wants to hear their perspective. Um, his official title at the seminary is Associate Professor of Theology and Christian Formation at Denver Seminary, which is something near and dear to my heart because I'm writing a book on theology and Christian formation. He's also the author of multiple books. Uh, we'll discuss one of those on sanctification that just came out this summer and host a podcast for Denver Seminary called Engage 360. Dr. Payne, you've got your wife, Sharon, three kids, two grandkids. Uh, you're part of Wellspring Anglican Church, uh, which I think is fantastic because, uh, you know, you come from a diverse ecclesial background and maybe we'll get into that a little bit. But Dr. Payne, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Chase. Good to see you. Well, uh, you know, I wanted to start off, and this is kind of how I like to start off any conversation with somebody who uh, who I admire. Is just you know, story shapes our uh, the way we do theology, kind of the way we think about God and life. And part of uh, your story, a significant part of it, is your dissertation. And and typically, dissertations have this kind of like they're in a library somewhere in a different country, maybe. They don't really get read by anybody. Well, you put a lot of work into that thing, and you dedicated a lot of your uh, your family's life to your dissertation. Um, and and I think was it your dissertation was on Doc uh, J I Packer and sanctification, was it not? Uh, in part, yeah. Packer was the primary focal point of the study, and uh, his views of sanctification were one of the one of the aspects I was examining. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Just recently, this summer, uh, 2020 just keeps dealing blows to people, but we lost uh, J.I. Packer, which was a huge loss, at, at least in mine. And I'm sure for someone like yourself who studied him so closely and studied his works, um, that was pretty hard. What was that like for you when you heard that news? Well, I have to confess, I was not really close to him. Excuse me for a second. <clears throat> um He was very gracious, very generous with me while I was doing my research on him. We we corresponded a few times and I flew up to Vancouver for a, to interview him one-on-one once. And he, so he was quite generous with his time, yeah. very helpful. So I uh, really had a just a huge amount of respect for him. And that all began probably when I was in college and he released his, prob- his most famous book, I think, Knowing God, mm. which like many, many people had a deep impact on me. Right. And knowing God, I think it is really popular. I actually didn't read it until I got to seminary. I didn't know uh, J.I. Packer. I think what my granddad had one of his books on his bookshelf. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, as far as I know, he never wrote, you know, typically in a seminary setting, it, it seems like uh, a systematic theology is going to be uh, something that maybe would be propagated in the academy. But is knowing God kind of his closest thing to a systematic theology? No, not really. I would okay. say his closest thing was a lesser known volume he wrote called Concise Theology. 
oh, which okay. is which is formatted more like what we would call a systematic theology. It is very concise, so it's one relatively small volume, maybe two hundred and fifty pages. Uh, but he he by design tried to aim his theological work at a broader readership, not not at a real popular level, but still a, a more educated, broader readership. And that seemed to be a sense of his personal mission. And that's mm. one of the reasons I think he never wrote what we would consider a magnum opus systematics. And he took criticism for that. There oh, were really? people who, yeah, he, there were people who wanted him to write a systematic theology, but he never, he never felt the need to do that, I suppose. And he really felt called in different directions with his writing. Fascinating. And as far as your journey, what led you at that point in your life? Um, you know, as far as I know, you, you were kind of a, you were serving as a pastor going into the academy. What at that point in your life, you said, you know what, I want to dedicate the next few years of my life to researching this issue. What was it that really sparked your curiosity about that? Well, the background of that is that my doctoral work grew out of some things I was encountering in pastoral ministry. Okay. And what I began to see, and this was over a stretch of some years, but mm. I, as I was reading, I continued to read theologically while I was in pastoral ministry. And I began to see, and this was rather unexpected to me, but I began to see how my theological anthropology uh, primarily my understanding or my assumptions about what it means to be made in God's image were profoundly influencing, even though in a subterranean way, not a real explicit way, but still profoundly influencing how I understood and went about work of discipleship, work of Christian formation. And as some of those rather subterranean connections began to surface for me. I got really excited about those. Mm. And I realized that we all make certain working assumptions about what it means to be human mm. in the ways we go about uh, spiritual formation and discipleship. And again, those are not generally conscious or explicit assumptions or connections, but they're there all the same. Right. And as I began uh, theologically to unearth some of those connections, I really got excited about the theological anthropology that underpins Christian formation. So when I decided to pursue doctoral work, that was the, the theological linkage I wanted to explore. Okay. And then when, um, when I got underway, my uh, supervisor, Tom Noble, uh, he and I kind of bandied about trying to uh, discern who would be the best representative figure to study about that linkage. And so mm. I didn't I didn't set out directly to study J.I. Packer. Gotcha. I set out to study the linkage between anthropology and uh, the doctrine of sanctification. Now, I've since changed my views on sanctification, but that was uh, that was the linkage I wanted to explore. And we settled on Packer because he had written considerably about both of those doctrines. Uh, he gave he gave lots of attention to the Christian life, to the doctrine of sanctification, uh, discipleship. He was very much, though he, um, he wouldn't be called this in many settings, but by my definition, he, he was very much a practical theologian. Okay. Now, generally, when, when academicians talk about practical theology, they're talking about the tactics of ministry. That's not what 
Packer would have understood practical theology to mean. He, he would have understood that to mean lived theology. In fact, he wrote one article, the title of which I believe was all theology is spiritual theology. Mm. And so that in that sense, he was very much a practical theologian. So he gave lots of attention to that, and he gave a, a pretty good amount of attention to the image of God, to what, what it means to be human. He has one volume on that. So anyway, he, he ended up being a good case study for us, for me, uh, to explore that linkage. And we also settled on him because of the breadth of his influence on North American evangelicalism. Hmm. And so the fact, that, the fact that he never wrote a magnum opus systematics uh, that raised a bit of a question with some as to is is he really worth serious academic study? Oh, really? But we, yeah, yeah, it really did, especially on the other side of the pond because this, okay. is, you know, in the UK, um, because he migrated to North America in the mid seventies okay. and spent the bulk of his career here, and most of his influence was on this side of the Atlantic. Some in the British theological scene never took him seriously as a theologian. So we, we had to kind of make the case that, that he was worth study because of the breadth of his influence on the evangelical scene in North America. Wow. I never knew that. That's fascinating. And then as you got into Packer's work on theological anthropology, because it sounds like that was a main focus for, for you. um, I guess, you know, you, you mentioned, you got into it to study somebody who was well-known, who had a lot of substantive content with which you could engage. And yet now you find yourself, you know, uh, in kind of a different place on the doctrine of sanctification. To what, what does that journey look like for you? Like you, you, you worked with T.A. Noble as your, I think it was T.A. Noble, right? Yeah. Your, your doctoral supervisor. What did that journey look like for you as far as the development of your own theology of sanctification? Well, I can't say that studying Packer's views on sanctification really played into my own shifts of thinking because Packer takes a, a fairly conventional reformed view of sanctification. Okay. Uh, so it'd be very familiar and n- nothing novel there. What really prompted some of the shifts in my own thinking about sanctification were other, other factors uh, that were raising questions for me about that conventional construction of the doctrine of sanctification. So that, that was, that was kind of a different process. I can't say that Packer really shifted my thinking there, but it was, it was, it was very interesting to see how he connected his understanding of being human uh, with the doctrine of sanctification as he understood it. And, and I think it was very beneficial, very profitable. For sure, because as and, and I think this is one of the strengths of the Reformed tradition is that they have given, on the whole, lots of attention through the years to doctrines such as common grace and creation and anthropology, much more so than some other streams of evangelical traditions have. Okay, and that's a that's a real strength. Those have been now. This is even more true in the continental. Uh, reform tradition than it is in the British reform tradition. Okay. But still Packer was well-versed enough in both that he could draw up on both streams of the reform tradition and had a pretty, pretty robust anthropology to, to dig out. For sure. And when, just so that we kind of are operating on a, on a common understanding for people who may be listening and not familiar with some terms, um, you know, reformed has its own kind of category theologically and stuff that goes along with that. But particularly when we're talking about sanctification, what is it 
how, how would you describe sanctification for, for people listening? Well, the, the constructs or the lingo that is probably most familiar, recognizable, would be that there's an aspect of sanctification that is often called positional, where uh, we're sanctified into a new standing it sounds almost like the language we use for justification. Mm. That gets a, I'll, I'll be just a, I don't mean to be snarky here, but that gets kind of a wink and a nod, if you will. Okay. But it, especially within the reform tradition and other traditions that have sort of uh, drank at that well. Yeah. The, no pun intended for the well. <laughs> oh, I yeah, just thanks. thought of that. <laughs> um but other evangelical traditions that have been influenced by that aspect of the Reformed tradition will really give the bulk of their attention to what is called progressive sanctification. Okay. And Packer made a thick contribution to that. Really? Progressive, yeah, a progressive sanctification being the ongoing outworking of the Christian life, mm. energized and prompted by God's grace, of course, mm. uh, guided by God's grace, but at the same time, thoroughly, wholeheartedly engaged as a, as a battle, a lifelong battle to grow in Christ. Right. Um, and Packer, in his own journey as a young Christian, uh, which it was an interesting journey, kind of shifted into that from a very different understanding of sanctification that frustrated him no end. Yeah. And as he, he um, and you'll appreciate this, early in his journey, he kind of stumbled across some volumes of John Owen. Okay. And began to read John Owen. He was a young Christian and didn't, I don't think he even knew who John Owen was, but he, he was serving as an assistant librarian at a small Puritan study center, Puritan library there in Oxford. Okay. And happened to come across these volumes of Owen and began to read Owen on the Christian life. And all of a sudden it was really life giving to him because it was so realistic when Owen describes mm. the Christian life as mortification and vivification, or just a constant battle against, you know, the world, the flesh and the devil to, to struggle motivated and sustained by God's grace, mm. but struggle nonetheless, rather than a sort of passive and pi or uh, yeah, passive and perfectionistic understanding of sanctification, where if you just take your hands off the controls, let go and let God, as the saying sometimes goes, right. And then the spirit of God just carries you along. That's what he had been discipled in. And it, and it really was about to make him crazy. For sure. Frankly. Yeah. And then when he, when he came across Owen, he found such refreshing realism, mm. you know, and that, that became so sanctification and the doctrine of progressive sanctification became a pretty big point of attention for him. Yeah, for sure. I, I when I read Owen, I guess, uh, <clears throat> about seven, eight years ago, um, uh, what was the book about the mortification? Is it the mortification of sin that he wrote? Yeah, um, I think that's I, the title. I was reading that late at night, and it's very intense. It um, is very intense, and depending <laughs> upon your personal disposition and and psyche and your your mood at the time, uh, <laughs> Owen can either liberate you or depress you. <laughs> it yeah, can it was, go both ways. <laughs> it was depressing for me for sure. <laughs> I wanted to like it so much because you know everyone talks about John Owen. Heck, yeah, I named my yeah. my youngest son Owen. Yeah. Um, but uh, but whenever I read Owen, I'm like, oh gosh, 
I am I am not good enough at all. It is intense. (laughs) It is intense. Yeah, you had to kind of have to take Owen in doses. Yeah, for sure. Well, that kind of brings us to kind of your theology of sanctification. You recently released a book, I think, through Baker Academic called Sanctification. I think, right? It's all. It's called Already Sanctified. Already Sanctified. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about that. What is that? What is that about? I've 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 got it in my cart on Amazon. Have not got it yet. Um, But I'd love to hear it from you. Kind of the the short and sweet of it. Okay. Well, I'll give you a little history of how this came to be. And I don't know if this will cross paths with your own experience here at Denver Seminary or not. Uh, I really, what first put a, a shift of thinking on my radar were some conversations with one of my closest friends, uh, Dr. Jim Howard. Okay. Uh, he and I are, are elk, longtime elk hunting buddies. And so we have, we do some of our I don't know if it's good theology or bad theology, but we we do some of our um, most intense theological work around the campfire every year hunting That's elk. That's great. And he he had done in his uh, doctoral work in New Testament, he had done some work on sanctification. And so as we started to talk about that, he he introduced to me to a perspective I had never heard before uh, by an Australian New Testament scholar, uh, David Peterson. Okay. And Peter Peterson essentially argued, and you can still get his book. It's called Possessed by God. Uh, Peterson, as a from a New Testament perspective, argues that the dominant profile of sanctification in the Scriptures is that it is already a a done thing. It's mm. already an accomplished. He calls it definitive, and that's that's a fairly common word for this view as well. Definitive sanctification. Okay. I mentioned a little earlier that in the reform tradition, they'll often give a a kind of a passing nod to what they call positional sanctification. And that's what we're talking about though. You'll not always find people using the same word because of connotations those words have. But anyway, that aspect of sanctification, that's that God has already done. It's not, it's not out in front of us. Mm. Well, I'd never, never heard about that or considered that before. And didn't dig into that immediately, but what really prompted my own research on it, probably 10 to 12 years ago, was this capstone experience that we have for our MDiv program called MDiv Orals. I, I'm sure you have fond memories of this. <laughs> for sure. That was <laughs> or not, fun. Or not. <laughs> I'm one of the weird uh, ones that actually yeah. enjoyed like the it? opportunity good. to uh, to engage in that. Well, I, was, I was thrilled to actually, I had a lot of fun. Good. So well, good for great. you. Good for you. I'm glad you did. I'm proud of it's, you for that. It's rare. Yeah, it is. It is kind of rare, but MDiv orals, uh, that's our insider language for it. But it for listeners who may not know what that is, it's kind of like a mini ordination exam where right. you have to write a paper that outlines your views on all the classic doctrines of the faith. And then you sit with a couple of professors for a couple of hours and have to orally defend that. So one of the sections you have to write on in your doctrinal paper is the doctrine of sanctification. What do you believe about that and how do you support your beliefs? So I began to notice semester after semester, just a a constant, a very consistent pattern that when students would write their section on sanctification, they would do two things. One is that they would generally say very little about the accomplished aspect of sanctification. Sometimes they'd say nothing at all about it. At, At best, they'd say, a tiny, just mention it barely. And then consistently they would go to great lengths to talk about their theology of progressive sanctification, okay. meaning the, the process of growing in Christian maturity of becoming, you know, your character being more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ mm. in, in this progressive way, all from conversion all the way through the rest of your life. 
They go on and on about that. Okay, that's one thing they would do. The second thing is that their theology of progressive sanctification was generally supported by biblical texts that if you look at them carefully, they say nothing about sanctification. Oh, fascinating. The texts, it's not the, the word either in English or in Greek or Hebrew is not in those texts. Huh. So I began to look at that. And again, I had I had the wheel kind of spinning in the background from all my conversations with my buddy Jim. And as I began to look at that, I, I thought, now, why is this such a recurring pattern? Why is everybody giving so little attention to this aspect of sanctification that seems to be fairly prevalent in the scriptures? And they're right. giving enormous amount of attention to this aspect that has that seems to have very little direct textual support. And they're supporting it with texts that don't talk about sanctification. Yeah, it's odd, huh? So, yeah, yeah, odd, you would think. And so I began to just on and off through the years as much off as on, but I began to kind of poke into this and look through the, the instances of these words, it, uh, the Hebrew word kadosh, which is translated consecrate or consecration or holiness in the Old Testament, and the Greek word group hagios, which that in its various forms is holy or sanctified in the mm -hmm. New Testament. I began to look at um, as many of the usages of these words as I could, and I was a little bit surprised to find that the overwhelming, I mean, grossly overwhelming majority of the usage of both those terms throughout scripture is that holiness or sanctification is something God has already done for mm. us. It's mm. not a progressive thing out in front of us. It's not a process. It's a done thing. Interesting. And I thought, well, now that's interesting from a quantitative perspective. Sure. But as then, as I began to really dig even deeper into how those word, uh, word groups are used in various texts, particularly in the New Testament, but all throughout the canon of Scripture, I realized that there's a qualitative sense in which that accomplished sense uh, really controls the other uses. Because there is there are some rather opaque senses in the New Testament where we're called to holiness, you know, right. holiness is is still like something that, in some sense, is yet to be completed. But mm. but the sense in which it's yet to be completed is not real clear. Mm. We're, we're called to it, so there are imperatives and commands. You know, be right. holy, pursue holiness. Right. Well, if we read those less direct, less clear texts in light of the overwhelming majority of texts that say uh, sanctification, holiness is a done thing, we come out with a very different picture. So that started me just maybe three or four years ago, wondering whether there might be a book to be written. And I had to think about that for quite a while to even decide whether, you know, is there really a book here to be written? Well, right. obviously I decided there was eventually. Right. But uh, what I, what I proposed in the book is that first, I'll just give you a few points, not in any particular order. First, sure. sanctification is not primarily a moral or ethical or character concept. Okay. Now that's that's an important point in all of this. Yeah. With that said, sanctification or holiness does have profound moral, ethical, character implications. Sure. Okay. Profound. But it's not per se a moral, ethical concept huh. at its heart. Okay. That's, that's one thing. Second, as I began to trace the use of the holiness wording and the holiness text from the Old Testament all the way forward, what I began to realize is that what sanctification, holiness, consecration does have to do with was being in the presence of God. 
mm. or more specifically being fitted for the presence and the purposes of God. Okay. And being, when I say be fitted, I, I mean like being cleansed from our sins, right. being cleansed of the, the, the impurities that would stand between ourselves and God. Right. In the, in the old Testament, the, the nation of Israel had, you know, a number of sort of symbolic purification rituals sure. that symbolize, you know, that symbolize that and kind of forecast what we see completed in Jesus on, on a permanent basis, on a, uh, full basis, you know, the cleansing from sin, but it was being fitted for the presence and the purposes of God. Mm. Now it was having been made holy in that sense that then obligated people to live into that, right. to, or to constantly orient their lives toward that, or we might say to be transformed and to grow, but the transformation and the growth were the outworking of having been sanctified. It was not sanctification itself. That's a really interesting point. Uh, I, I kind of have a corollary thought on that. Pre the presence of God is something that comes up, in a, or at least in my experience, it seems like from it, maybe not holiness traditions theologically, but people who come from maybe holiness traditions, when they come to church, they're hoping to encounter the presence of God in a substantive way. And sometimes as a pastor, you'll hear kind of these observations, uh, you know, uh, I didn't really sense the presence of God there, right? Or, or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, but but what you just said, I think what you're hinting at, um, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, is that because we've been united with Christ and Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and we're united to him relationally, then our participation in church, our, our pursuit of holiness, whatever you want to call it, has less to do with us kind of fabricating an environment where where we can sense the presence of God, it has more to do with um, celebrating the reality that we're already brought into the presence of God by being united to Christ. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. This, this biblical, this New Testament notion of being united with Christ, which um, as a sidebar, I mean, John Calvin was just all over that. Calvin gets either a lot of blame or a lot of credit, mostly for his views on predestination. But one of Calvin's biggest themes and his biggest concerns was union with Christ. Mm. He probably beat that drum about as hard as he beat any other drum. Sure. <clears throat> but uh, so union with Christ has a lot of linkages with accomplished sanctification. Okay. Uh, and being brought into union with Christ by the spirit of God. Mm. Okay, so there's a pneumatological aspect yeah. to this as well. We For are sure. united with Christ by the Spirit, and I mean, I, I'm all over experiencing the presence of God, and I think we need to be more okay with fostering that and encouraging that, but well, without making that kind of a benchmark for you know whether we've done church right, right. Um, but as you say, Chase, when we when we when we trust that we have in fact been brought into the presence of God that and, and pay attention to that, lean into that, mm. that will profoundly change us. Right. I so what, uh, what I go on to argue in the book is that the doctrine of transformation is a very real thing in okay. scripture, particularly in the new Testament. Okay. But what's, what's happened. And I know some think this is just playing with semantics, but, I believe words matter. Okay. Sure. So th there's a very thick doctrine of transformation 
and there's a doctrine of sanctification and they are connected, mm. but they're not synonymous. Gotcha. So we must be transformed. We, and we can be transformed because we have been sanctified. Wow. It's, it's what has happened in sanctification that, that propels and that directs and orients our transformation. Right. But what's happened, and this, again, is, this, this is not the worst theological crime in the world. Sure. So I don't want to over, overblow the significance of this, but, but it does matter when transformation texts in the New Testament are taken to indicate sanctification as a process then we've misrepresented what God has already done. Mm. And we've, we've, what we end up doing is underdeveloping the robust significance of what God has already done to make us holy, to bring us into God's presence. Right. And when we have that underdevelopment on that end, that ends up then with a doctrine of transformation that is subtly, but still insidiously moralistic. Totally. Yeah. I've seen that. So we end up, we end up, yeah, and I can get pretty animated about this if you can't tell. Um, <laughs> what 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 happens then is a is a really subtle Protestant version yeah. of the very thing the magisterial reformers were reacting against. Wow! In in the late medieval Roman Catholic Church. Wow! Because people get filled with this kind of anxiety that Precisely. in order to get holy, I have to be better. And if I got to get that better, holiness, yeah, yeah. Put it if you put it just that way that holiness is, you know, kind of. Crudely put, holiness is understood as getting better, right. being better. Yeah. And that shapes everything. I mean, that shapes our churches. That shapes our the way we preach. And and the reason I think, I think it's so. important that you're passionate about it is because uh, if if you're not clear and then you're teaching me in an unclear way, then, then God knows that the people in our churches are unclear on this issue. If we yeah. can't get clarity and unity on this point, and that affects parenting, that affects the way we do ministry, um, leading people in with a fear-based mentality of, uh-huh. you know, you've got to make sure you're holy enough instead of going, yeah. Christ has already made you holy. And yeah. that that kind of takes the pressure off and goes, now just let's let's grow now, together. Be There's who no- you are. Yeah. And, and to say, just to be clear on that point, when we say Christ has already made us holy or we are holy in Christ, he is our holiness. As 1 mm. Corinthians one thirty says, yeah. he is our holiness. That does not mean that my character has already been perfected. Sure. That does not mean I'm mature. That does not mean <laughs> right. I'm a good person. Right. It, does, it, it has, uh, again, it has implications for that. Sure. But it doesn't mean that I've got it all together or that I've, um, uh, you know, I, I've got no more work to do. Right. I got a lot to do. And we see this indicated, I, and I point this out in the book. If you look at some of these often ignored or bypassed texts in mm. the New Testament, like the introductory comments to a lot of Paul's letters and at least one of Peter's, yeah, where they address these churches as whole ones. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it gets obscured because various English translations won't always translate the same way. They'll say, oh, to the saint in, saints in Corinth. Sure. Well, it, it's using this, the word for sanctification, hagios, the hagios, okay. or the, the sanctified ones in Corinth. Yeah. Now, just take that as a, as a working model. Arguably, the church in Corinth was about as messed up as any of the first century churches were aware of. Right. Okay, I, mean, I mean, they just had problems galore. But Paul addresses them as holy ones, as sanctified ones. Mm. And then he goes on, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, to tell them, 
in the same sentence, you have been justified, you have been sanctified. Mm. And he uses that as the platform for then telling them to sometimes correcting them. Right. And, and giving them these imperatives, Hey, get in the game. How do you know, don't treat each other like this. Right. Lean, lean into who you are. Right. As ones who've been brought into the presence of the living God. Wow. Wow. That would, that would just really change the way that we preach about these issues. My friend, Matt uh, commented here on the Facebook chat that, uh, that he said he had to take some of his sermons <laughs> off the internet because of kind of this, this idea, this reality that, you know, Sorry, it really Matt. changes the way we, uh, we talk about sanctification, but that's been super helpful. Um, and so if people want to buy your book, I'm assuming it's available on Amazon. It is. Um, and, and remind us of the title again. It's called Already Sanctified. Already Sanctified. Gosh, I, I, I can't wait to get that in the mail. I know I've already probably heard a lot of it in your classes uh, from you personally, which is yeah, a great way to hear it. Pieces of it, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I look forward to hearing. One of the, there were two things I wanted to kind of finish out the podcast with, though. Um, that It's not really a jump too much because we've talked about um, Packer and theological anthropology, sanctification. And one thing that that's come up in your kind of academic stuff is theological method. And I took this class on theological method from you. And it was one of the most, uh, it was one of the most difficult classes, but also one of the most illuminating classes in terms of just uh, epistemological assumptions, the way we go about theology. And recently, I think you tweeted or said something uh, publicly that you wish evangelicals and Christians would know more about theological method. Why? What prompted you, or what? What do you see that kind of makes you go? I wish more people would would know about theological method. Theology can really come alive if we understand a bit of the underpinning or the backstory to how it's done and what it's about. Mm. So, I'll, I'll broad brush here. Okay, forgive me. Sure. Uh, I think when many Christians think about theology, or it's particularly what we call systematic theology, they're thinking about one thing, one pr aspect of practice that theologians do. And that's the aspect of kind of combing through scripture to gather everything scripture seems to say about a different topic and organize those and classify those. It's it kind of like these, um, these things I have in my garage. Uh, I've got these little boxes with compartments in them, you know, you keep different tools and different sure. pieces and different compartments. So you just, you can kind of organize things and by theme. And then you say, okay, this is the theology of this. This is the theology of that. Okay. That's, that's building a system. And okay. that's why we come up with this name systematic theology. Well, that is one thing theology does, but that's only one thing. And I don't even know that it's the most significant thing. Sure. In my opinion, but theology and th this is where method comes in. Theology has to do with the kinds of questions that we're bringing to the text. Questions like, who is God? And what are God's ways? Mm. Well, there, there's no organizational box you're going to just collect texts and say, put them in that box and say, okay, well, this is who God is and this is who God's ways are. That kind of goes throughout Scripture. Right. So if we're if we're looking at the kinds of questions we're bringing to Scripture, the questions we're expecting Scripture to answer, mm. um, that's method, and that's okay. going to help us see the more the multidimensionality of the text, rather than it being merely a two dimensional grid of boxes that we drop different pieces of biblical data into. Right. Okay. And it also theological method also 
will um, relate to how we organize doctrinal themes. So if you, um, if you know the nerds out there who will look at theology textbooks, um, if anybody's you know got way too much time on their hands and they do that kind of thing, <laughs> um, look at the outline. Uh, look at the table of contents and ask yourself, where do they start? What doctrine do they start with? And what, mm. how do they organize the flow of the doctrines? Uh, right. don't, don't take for granted that there is one inspired way to do that. So right. where, where you start in your theological conversations will dictate uh, how you treat other, other texts there. So in many evangelical theologies, you'll see that they start with the doctrine of revelation or the doctrine of scripture and the doctrine of the church is way toward the end. Mm. Well, what signals does that send? If you look at some uh, Eastern Orthodox theologies, you'll find their treatment of themes laid out very differently. The doctrine of the church, for example, ha is really, really central. Right. Okay. Where, you know, for evangelical Christians, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah, that's a good thing if you've got time for it, you know, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> so that's, that's yep. method. And so the method underneath how we, uh, how we read the scriptures, how we put them together into doctrinal packages, uh, right. that, that shows us that God's revelation has a lot more dimensionality to it than just a, a big data bank. Yeah. And, and I was just talking with somebody about this yesterday. There's kind of two ways um, it kind of plays out in ministry is we tend to the way we approach God and the questions we expect God to answer in, in his revelation to us will inadvertently result in uh, the way we treat one another, I think, oftentimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in ministry, you'll see pastors who come, or, or Christians, just Christians in general, come over, under a lot of scrutiny because we treat the text like a law book. Um, because we have a history of Calvin being a lawyer and other people being lawyers, and, yeah. and they're looking for the text to give us black and white answers on character issues or how to be holy or whatever it may be. Mm. And we, we want to use uh, terms like qualified or disqualified and all these kind of things that then shape how we inform people about uh, what it means to live the Christian life. Um, and I, I just think it can be so helpful if Christians would think about their theological method. One of the ways I wanted to tease it out for us kind of in this episode was talking about fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. um, one of the thoughts I, I just had this morning, there was a, uh, I think I shared it with you, the national, um, I think it was a Smithsonian shared a graph about kind of white culture. And, and I think it was their attempt to describe um, some of the things out there that, um, that I guess they see as kind of white culture. Uh, one of, one of the interesting things about that is we've actually talked about some of the critiques of what I guess they're calling white culture in seminary, which is kind of the, the errors or not even errors, um, the overstated uh, strengths of modernism and the ability to produce kind of these cause and effect linear, like predictable patterns. Mm -hmm. um, and then w this is where I need your help. Did fundamentalism kind of rise out of modernism as kind of they took modernism's tools and just kind of like made it part of Christianity? That's a very perceptive question. And the short answer would be yes, in many ways it did. Okay. And that's that's as I'm that's not entirely a criticism. That's sure. more of an observation. Sure. Okay? Because all theology is done in some context. Right. There's, there's no theology in a vacuum. 
Right. And theology, as it takes shape in different generations, will always be shaped to some extent by the kinds of questions and battles that are the battles that are being fought and the questions that are on the table in the mm. culture at that time. Mm. And that's that's one of the reasons you see a lot of the theology that was done between, um, well, in the modernistic era, the post-Enlightenment era, but particularly the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah. That hundred or so year span. You see a lot of the theology there starting with the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of scripture. Sure. Well, the reason for that is that that's what was um, at, at issue. That's Those were the battlegrounds, particularly in the late 19th century, when German higher criticism right. was coming across the Atlantic and the, the, the integrity and authenticity and thereby trustworthiness of the Bible was being questioned. That became a, a real crucial battleground. And right. so that became kind of the lead foot in the dance theologically for fundamentalism. Fascinating. Uh, and, and again, that's just an observation. Right. But to, to the point of your question, Chase, where modernism um, did become, in my view, problematic is that fundamentalism, uh, depending on how you want to define that, sure. did take the the same enlightenment driven epistemological assumptions that liberalism took mm. and tried to fight the battle with them. And so they came out with a different set of content conclusions, but gotcha. methodologically they were doing the same thing. And what that same thing was, was a, a heightened view of the rational capacities mm. of the human person to discern and validate the truth of God. Mm. And what what we could call that now in theological terminology would be the noetic or the, you know, the rational effects of the fall. Right. And it's, it's been argued. And I, I think I would agree with this, that in many ways, fundamentalism uh, operated with an anthropology that gave human rational capacities more than their due. Right. Or didn't uh, state it differently did not really account fully for the noetic effects of the fall. Sure. All right. Because they were still working with those enlightenment assumptions about the capacities of human rationalism. Well, that's exactly right. what, that's exactly what Protestant liberalism was doing. Gotcha. During that time period. And fundamentalism just took the same set of operating assumptions and went in a different de direction with them, but it had a different set of consequences. Right. It became a very rationalistic information driven faith. Right. It's a really, uh, I know this is some dense stuff, but to me, this is really helpful and illuminating because, you know, I look to these theologians that came before me as kind of people I can stand on the shoulders of and, and no way would I want to denigrate the work that they were putting in and in, in the, in the fights they were having to defend the gospel and the truth of scripture. Um, but just knowing some of, and that's why I found your classes on uh, theological method was so helpful because I was, it was the first time I had ever considered, uh, as someone who loves uh, engineering and loves kind of like cause and effect and and rational capacity, and I, I champion that, I champion reason and all that stuff. Yeah. It's like, well, that's not a complete picture of humanity. And and I'll, I'll encounter this in pastoral ministry, where you get Bible studies or small groups that go, well, what what's most important is how I understand the text. 
and we can kind of take this doctrine of perspicuity. I think that's how you say it, mm-hmm. um, where the idea is scripture is clear, right? And we'd all agree with that as Protestants. But I think as as people, we can assume more clarity because we elevate our rational capacities mm-hmm. and we assume we go into the scripture saying, well, I can read it, therefore I can make conclusions, therefore my conclusions are right. Yeah. And I just think that's a really scary place to be. Yeah, it is. That doctrine of perspicuity or the self-evident clarity of scripture, uh, I, I still hold to that when, when it comes to the basic outline, the basic of knowing God, of knowing who I am, knowing what it means to you know live by God's grace. Right. But that, um, if we think about this in Thanksgiving terms, that turkey has been overcooked in the oven. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the turkey of uh, biblical perspicuity has been a bit overcooked. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, your comment about engineering, um, my doctoral mentor, Tom Noble, who is a Scot, uh, but taught in the state in the U S for a number of years. And so he was pretty attuned to American culture as an outsider to it. He told me once, I found this very curious. He, he said to me, you cannot overestimate the extent to which American culture has been shaped by the applied sciences, Mm. the engineering sciences. Now, as an American, I'm very grateful for that in many ways. You know what? Because things tend <laughs> yeah. to, they tend to work here. Right. You compare, you know, compared to many places in the world, uh, and if you've traveled internationally much, you know, you come back here and you think, well, you know, hey, man, we got a lot of problems, but on the whole, things tend to work here pretty well because we're a culture sure. of engineers. Right. Okay. So I'm very grateful for that. At the same time, when that becomes kind of a widespread mindset or a set of lenses through which we read the Bible, we apply engineering metrics. Mm. Uh, to God's truth. And we try to make sense of it on those bases. And unless we can be like an engineer and get a schematic where all the numbers zero out and all the angles square, we don't believe it. Sure. Gosh. And that's, that's um, I think that's a problem. Yeah. I think it, it's a challenge for sure for many people, um, even if they may not know it. If, if somebody, let's say somebody in my church uh, heard this and was like, theological method sounded interesting. Uh, where would one even begin to, uh, to, you know, we don't, our goal would not be to deconstruct, but just yeah. maybe examine some priors yeah. when we come to the word of God, what would be maybe a starting point for somebody that was curious about their theological method? Uh, well, you'll have to give me a moment here to <laughs> look at myself. Gosh, where do we start? Um, there actually is a, I have a little book called Theological Method, A Guide for the Perplexed. Okay. But I read it and I didn't think it was very, you're still perplexed. I mean, I teach theological (laughs) method and I read it and thought, yeah, I'm kind of perplexed. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, So yeah, I don't have a real helpful answer on that. Um, Let me suggest maybe some authors uh, who I think are, are doing helpful work. Kevin Van Hooser uh, from Trinity yeah. Uh, has, uh, he, he thinks in these arenas a lot. Now what Van Hooser and others are involved in is what we call the theological interpretation of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, pick up some of Van Hooser's more accessible, uh, volumes and you'll, you'll at least get some working examples right. of theological method. His book first theology okay. gets at this from a, it's an example of how to begin the theological enterprise from the doctrine of the Trinity. Gotcha. Rather than the doctrine of what is revealed about God, the do, um, it's it's trying to know God by studying God rather than by studying the means of revelation. Gotcha. So Van Hooser is a good one. Um, Kevin, uh, not Kevin, um, uh, Trevor Hart. Okay. 
uh, his book, Faith Thinking, I think okay. is uh, worth looking at. Cool. That's great. Those are great. I know Van Hooser is super influential for me theologically, yeah. even though, yeah, you know, if I look around my bookshelf, I don't know that I own a work by him yet. I've just seen his work shame, everywhere. Shame on you. I know, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I look forward to getting that for sure. Um, one of the other things that I saw you recently put out there, and I know we've talked about kind of current events, and mm-hmm. um, there's only so much we can we can say about that uh, as far as what's going on in our world, just because things are so complicated right now, and everybody yeah. seems to have a thought and opinion, um, including myself. But you put out something about, I think you said the Brahmin Declaration. Is the that what you said? Barman, Barman Declaration. Barman, Barman Declaration. Mm-hmm. I want two questions on that. What is that? And and why did you feel like, gosh, maybe we need to re- consider doing that for ourselves as Christians? <laughs> well, the Barman Declaration was a sort of confession of faith that was crafted by what we know as the Confessing Church in Germany during World War II. Okay. And the confessing church were those uh, pastors and congregations who were not willing to go along with the ideology of the Nazis, like the the national church or the state church did okay. uh, at the time. They sort of were co-opted by the Nazis. Uh, and the confessing church were those and Car- people like Karl Barth and I think Helmut Tilaka, a number of um, a number of them that sometimes get tagged with being neo-orthodox, they were the ones who kind of raised the red flag and, and said, no, no, this, this ain't right. And they right. crafted a, a confession of faith called the Barman Declaration that essentially uh, affirmed, I'll put this in just very terse language, just affirmed the lordship of Jesus Christ over the national agenda that w- they were being swept up in. Right. And that uh, it's worth reading. Look it up online, uh, B-A-R-M-E-N. And I think, well, what I said on Twitter about that, and I, I don't vent my spleen on Twitter very much. Um, I kind of keep my head down in a lot of ways, but I'm, I'm feeling that this is wise. Well, you know, that's why I still have a head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, but I'm feeling, especially at this stage in my life, I'm feeling um, a, more of a moral obligation to, to get into just to, to speak up for certain mm. things. Sure. And what really unsettles me these days is how many or how much of the evangelical church seems to be finding its identity in political agendas, uh, of whatever sort on whatever side. Right. And while they, while the church may not be willing to say that that's what they're doing, I think you can always tell where we're finding our identity mm. by what we're willing to uh, fight over and divide over. Right. right. And when you see the church and there's many sectors of the evangelical church across this country, uh, being willing to uh, t- take up arms uh, literally or metaphorically, Right. on various issues and and be divisive within the church mm. over uh, political candidates, um, positions on various issues. I think we're we're on the cusp, if not having already crossed over into a false identity of who we really are. Wow. And that's why I said I, I f- 
I think the way I stated it on Twitter was I, I am very afraid that we are on the verge of needing an updated and American version of the Barman Declaration, just so that we can get right. real clear again about who is Lord and who is not, right? and who we are as a church and what that means in relation to what's going on politically in a number of arenas. For sure. Yeah, I think that's super important and, and really a, a helpful word for someone young like me who kind of looks around and, and is wondering, gosh, what, what is this? What are we going through? Yeah, um, yeah. How do, how do I, as a leader, as a father, as a husband, how do I navigate these issues? Um, yeah, and it, is and steward, it is, it's super crazy. Um, yeah. but I just, I, I appreciate you kind of reminding us of that in the Lordship of Christ. It's something I try to do in my sermons and the people who know me well know I, I have various opinions on various things, but one of the things I like to do at our church is, uh, welcome a variety of, of opinions. I, I, I think the church should be a, a place where we can all submit to the Lordship of Christ. And that's why one of the most compelling verses to me, um, and I, I can't think, remember the specific verse or the, the set of verses where Jesus is basically like, it's in John 6. He says, uh, drink my blood, eat my body, and then people leave him. The Lordship of yeah. Christ isn't some plaything. It's not some, yeah. you know, I'll see how that works out for me and see if it, if it makes my parenting better. It is a declaration of allegiance. And that's why Jesus was killed because he said, I'm God, bow to me. And uh, people typically don't like that, you know? Yeah, that will be very unsettling. And, you know, that, do that does not mean that we don't take our opinion seriously. It does not mean that at times we're not going to arm wrestle each other. Sure. It it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be animated. Right. Okay. But it does mean at the at at the end of the day that this identity supersedes all those other identities, no right. matter how seriously or animated we uh, we may become about our opinions. For sure. Well, gosh, that's so helpful to kind of close us out. Um, it's just a good reminder to me because I I you know I like to have people on the podcast that can remind me of God's truth and and where we stand in, in relation to all of this. Um, and so I'm just encouraged to, to hear from you uh, on these topics. And um, yeah, it's been it's been great having you, not just on the podcast, but as kind of a theological mentor to me. So mm -hmm. thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Payne. My pleasure. It's been, uh, you're doing good work here. Thanks for it. All right, for sure. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, stay tuned next week. We're hoping to have Dr. Tafalowski. Is that is that Ryan's name, yeah, Dr. Payne? Tafalowski. Great. Yeah. Just uh, he did, call him Taff or Taffy. He'll love that. Dr. Taff. Uh, hopefully next week where we can talk about kind of some research he did on a theologian who was living through uh, Weimar, Germany, uh, and, and really how that theologian navigated those issues during that time, which I think, you know, based on what we just talked about may prove beneficial for people to learn more about. So mm. hope, hope to see you then. We'll be sharing that next week, but thanks so much for joining us for Foolproof Theology.